This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Hill and Katie Balls. So today was another Prime Minister's Questions. Katie, what did you think of it? I thought it was pretty classic. You had a situation where it, Keir Starmer went on immigration. I think that was expected after the small boats crossing. I think it's still interesting um, that Labour now feel confident enough in an issue that has traditionally seen them as a weak spot for them to choose it and go on the attack. And then you had Labour, as we know they want to, attacking the new legislation as unworkable, saying it's the latest example of government incompetence on the issue. So staying away from the morality instead of going on the workability. Mm. And then you had Rishi Sunak in response going on the sense that Labour is never really uh, in the right place when it comes to immigration and suggesting that ultimately Labour are not where most voters are on the issue. Keir Starmer defending his record from his time as uh, chief prosecutor and basically a good general slap around. (laughs) Um, Who came out on top? I think that... Both the Tory benches and the Labour benches seemed pretty united behind their leader during that session. Sat in the chamber, there were you know pretty loud cheers for Rishi Sunak when he finished. I think it does show you that this legislation is having a fairly unifying effect. I think it's coming after a pretty good week for Rishi Sunak last week. If you think about the protocol, how it went better than many in his own party expected. And therefore, he did have some momentum behind him. However, the problem Rishi Sunak has is he does need to show results here and probably Mm. fairly quickly so you have a situation where I think this bill once passed into law and the best estimate there I think if everything goes right for the government is six months could be up to a year longer if you have laws rebellions Labour potentially opposing it and of course then legal challenge but ultimately it is a framework and a lot of it then comes down to even once it becomes law it doesn't fix the problem is then a lot of this is operational and much of it is then the responsibility of the Home Office and Suella Braverman to actually make sure that it, it is working in the way they want to. So it's quite... So while I think Rishi Sunak is getting some plaudits from his party this week, there's still a long way to go. And I think in terms of what effect will this have on the electorate, I do think it's worth pointing out that Labour have been leading in lots of polling on terms of who has a better grip of the issue. So... Yes, it's red meat for Tory MPs and, in theory, Tory voters, but there's so much disillusionment about the success of failures. It's the onus is on the government to show it does work rather than others to say it doesn't work. More people just presume it won't work. James, as Katie alluded to, Labour's could go either way with this one. They could have gone down the ethical objections, um, which is what a lot of refugee uh, organisations, even the UN today, has come out and said this is, you know unethical but they've decided to go down an inworkability part of it I mean do they have a point there is a lot there's a long process to come down before anyone can get deported right yeah quite right and there was a great exchange of this at PMQs today when um, Rishi Sunak tried to attack Keir Starmer for being the party of open borders and being soft on immigration and pointed out his voting record which is voted against every sort of uh, immigration measure that's come before the House of Commons including last year's major bill. And uh, Starmer stood up and just retorted that, well, I voted against it because it wasn't going to work, and it didn't work, and I'm, as it has proven today. Um, so I think that, yeah, they've chosen to lead on pragmatism rather than principle, on actually the kind of viability of the scheme rather than fundamentally rejecting it, its um, the, the motive behind it. 
Uh, I think that's because I think partly it's, it's a more effective one, and actually I think people do want to see action on this according mm-hmm. to the polls. Uh, it's an issue of concern for uh, about a third of voters and a lot of Tories who Tory twenty nineteen voters who Labour want to win over. But I think. So it's not a left-right issue. With not nece- no, no, not necessarily. No, obviously it's more of concern to Tory voters, but a lot of those 2019 ones who who traditionally might have voted Labour uh, want to be won over on this. So I think that there, there is a concern about this. I think also, I think Katie makes a great point about the timeline. You know, Rishi Sunak has set himself this quite ambitious goal, very ambitious goal of getting, uh, you know, small boats stopped or numbers at least down. But of course this bill won't come into law, I think in six months, about September time. Uh, and then it's actually got to go through and legal challenges can take months and months and months. And before that, you know, you're sort of in the run up to the next year's election, which we presume will be around sort of October time. So I think that the better approach for the Conservatives will be to emphasise as part of a much wider range of a kind of a, a, a series of measures, things like the Albania deal, things such as, uh, you know, more negotiations with the French, more spending in the system as well, rather than, I think, put all their eggs in one basket. Uh, as you saw with Suella Brothman's statement, uh, sorry, with the bill before the House yesterday, um, there's actually concerns about how workable it is. So I think the viable point is probably the more politically potent one mm-hmm. and the one in which I think a lot of Tory MPs privately have said to me that they sympathise with and actually they worry about how viable it is. And Katie, the fallout from Matt Hancock's leaked WhatsApp messages continues to uh, reverberate across Westminster. Um, and the Times is reporting that Simon Case may not be able to stay in position until the coronation, which is in May and not so long away. What do you make of that? Is his position untenable? So I think the fear is there could be worse messages to come. And you see that in a few of the papers today. You also have the Telegraph who have not yet completed um, their release of Matt Hancock's messages, um, which obviously includes all the messages Matt Hancock received. And therefore, you have a situation where I think, and I'm sure none of us would really like it, but Simon Case is just living in fear, I suspect, of messages dropping at any moment it has made me rethink when when i send people whatsapps now actually (laughs) and on top of that have a situation where lots of tory mps have turned their attention to simon case thinking the comments he's made uh towards you know right-wing ideology suggesting you know bonkers in terms of the current prime minister's thinking during the lockdown issue means that he is now just too political a figure and this is not the type of language you'd expect from someone in that role, the top top civil servant. And I think it does make the position really hard. But what I would say, and James has an interesting piece in the magazine this week on Simon Case's career, he is a survivor. He's someone who... I think has we've seen from the fact he has adapted to success of different Tory leaders. There was lots of talk when Liz Truss came in that Simon Case would be pushed out, and yet he found a way to make himself quite useful to Liz Truss and, and stayed put. At the time he was appointed, it made him the youngest ever leader of the civil service. And I think that with that, obviously, came some pros, but it also means perhaps he's been a, more susceptible to some of the mm. problems and some of the traps that you encounter. But he is someone who has stuck around and therefore I think it's interesting lots of the briefing is coming from friends of Simon Case, which I think suggests that he himself is working out what a dignified exit looks like. Yeah, and there was a briefing in the Financial Times from these friends of Case and it said that his original sin, according to his defenders, was being young and talented and promoted to that job before he was grey. Actually, I think it was by being promoted by Boris Johnson, mm. who would have been a challenge to any of the great mandarins of the past. The so reverse if, Midas touch. Exactly. Well, Sir Edward Bridges, Bert Trend, all the great figures of the past, I think, would have struggled with uh, an unconventional, unorthodox premier like <gasps> Mr Johnson. But also, the manner of his his appointment, someone very steeped in academic history, but lacking in institutional knowledge, never been a permanent secretary, always meant he was going to find it tough. I mean, there's natural jealousy, of course, but also dealing with very complex things. He came in mid-pandemic. 
And, you know, he was appointed, he was the youngest cabinet secretary since 1916, and he's likely to be the youngest ever ex-cabinet secretary, because if not this year, and, you know, we were talking about the timing and perhaps the coronation will represent the right moment to go, next year you then think, well, at the end of the year you've got an election, and now you've got Sue Gray, who, despite the process, will probably become Keir Starmer's chief of staff. There's been reports last week that one of the reasons she left the civil service and wanted to leave uh, was because uh, she was denied the chance to be a permanent secretary by Simon Case, who blocked it. Uh, this is this is what the reports are, and and there's certainly I think, allies C. Gray have said that she was disappointed with how the Partygate investigation was handled. Of course, that was originally meant to be led by Simon Gray, uh, by Simon Case, who it turns out was at one of the gatherings which had to be investigated. So, uh, I think that Simon Case has has suffered, has been given a bad hand, but also played it pretty badly. And uh, he's got to remember, of course, that his role as cabinet secretary is just one of his two jobs. He's got cabinet secretary, but also head of the civil service. Mm. And I think that while he might have been a good courtier or a fixer or someone who could serve the prime minister at the cabinet table, his wider leadership of the civil service is now in question. And I think the most potent attack against him is from the civil service itself. Not from Tories necessarily, not from people who are sort of political actors, but really the people who Simon Case works alongside and who should be serving. And um, to that point... I think there is just a sense that for all the Tory MPs attacking him as being too political and suggesting this person is criticising Tory ideology and that's not their place, it's civil servants, including senior ones, who ultimately feel that Simon Case has shown insufficient leadership Mm. and often when it has come to the big issues has been too much on the side almost of the Prime Minister or on what the government wants as opposed to doing what they would hope which is representing their views and being on the side and I think there's still lots of upset over Partygate and the way that you had quite junior officials at events which they were looking at their seniors so so, Mm. you know took that to be appropriate and yet in many cases they were the ones who uh, were left with fines when others including Simon Case managed to avoid that and I think things like that they hang around and it means when there are problems up and down and it means when there are problems later down the line it makes everything a little bit more potent and finally viewers of gb news can look forward to a new presenter gracing their screens katie tell us about it <laughs> it's not katie <laughs> oh yeah katie. <laughs> lee anderson so the deputy party chairman will have this new show i think it's a long line recently we've seen of more and more politicians doing tv presenting their own shows and I think it's interesting because we're talking about the immigration bill at the start of this podcast, and that creates many problems for Richie it down the line if he can't actually surprise a lot of people and show progress on it. But it also is a wedge issue with Labour. And I think Lee Anderson's appointment too was meant to try and make Red Wall MPs feel this government reflected them more so, and also do so with voters. And you have Lee Anderson, and of course he gave an interview to The Spectator early on, saying that he was sympathetic to capital punishment, prides himself on being straight-talking. So I think this will be doing more of it. They want to get him out. That's the whole point of giving Lee Anderson the job but as we've seen I think when Jacob Rees-Mogg was in the cabinet and he kept one of his uh, broadcast regular programs it doesn't take much for you know someone to get a bit carried away or forget the responsibility they have when they have an official role and it can end in disaster so you have a situation where number 10 and CCHQ want Lee Anderson to be controversial Mm. but there's always a ceiling to that so we'll have to see how it goes. Well I mean I, for one, am looking forward to hearing more from Lee Anderson, having read his interview with you, James, and hearing more about his opinions on capital punishment and other things. Katie and James, thanks very much.